From the fish-filled Midwest lakes to the deep woods of the north, upland prairies filled with pheasants to the whistling wings of duck ponds, this is Saturday Morning Fan Outdoors, your show for hunting and fishing tips, topics, and conversations. You can also send us a question or opinion by emailing us, booth at kfan.com. Here's your host, the fans, Captain Billy Hildebrand. Forty-five seconds after the hour of six o'clock on a fan outdoors Christmas Saturday morning. Well, it's not quite Christmas yet, but it's getting closer. And I say Christmas because I can now. When I was, when I taught for a lot of years, and it's been a lot of years right behind the microphone too. But when I taught for a lot of years, when I started out, and I had a 35-year career in public education, and when I started out, it was, gosh, we celebrated the holidays. We did, and we tried to celebrate all of them. And then we had to get so politically correct, it got tougher and tougher and tougher. One, you couldn't, you couldn't put any lights on a pine tree. Then you couldn't, you couldn't mention the word. In bulletin boards, you couldn't put anything holiday up. And boy, I used to have a blast with it. And then it got so bad, you couldn't. It was always happy holidays, and then you couldn't even do that. You've got to be kidding no, me. No, it, it, uh, it got kind of irritating and kind of sad, too, because I think the kids, the kids had fun with it. And we used to have Christmas concerts and... And the kids would be there, and they'd have candy canes and walking around. And I, it always kind of bothered me until I wound things up, and I decided the last year I was going to wish people a Merry Christmas, and they could call me to the office, and I didn't care. After all, we celebrate Christmas. You know, you can, you can practice in this country, at least so far, unless things change. You can practice any holiday you want and celebrate it, and you can you can do what you'd like, and that's what makes this Christmas this country great. And what's it's Christmas is everything everything is revolves around Christmas. So I wish you a Merry Christmas on this the twenty third day of December, and it's all uh, it's all good. It's well the sun is uh, the sun comes up at seven fifty. Pretty late, but would you like a little good news? Would you like some things that make you feel better if you're looking forward to warm weather and soft water? Well, December 21st, two days ago at 10.28 a.m., we celebrated the winter solstice. Now, what is that? Something you eat, you might say. No, no, it's a, it's the day, the shortest daylight day of the year. And there's all kinds of reasons that I read that, none of which I really understand or can regurgitate. But basically, it's the longest night, the longest darkness of the year, 
and the shortest amount of daylight. And you might think, well, the winter solstice is the coldest day of the year. It's not. Typically, the normal midpoint of winter, which is also the coldest, normally, well, there isn't much normal anymore, is there? But we have no global warming. No, that doesn't exist. But we have uh, we have no climate change either. That doesn't exist either. That's kind of a, uh, that was an edict, I guess, from Washington. But uh, typically, the midpoint of winter is between January 12th and January 18th. But with the winter solstice behind us, our daylight days are getting longer. And it's only by seconds, perhaps. But just as we lost the daylight from last summer when it was, gosh, it would be it would be brighter when I'd come in here and sit in this chair when we'd be doing a cabin cast. But it's getting there. And it just kind of snuck away from us, and it does each year. But now it's coming back. So of that, I am uh, I am thankful, I really am, and it's uh, it must be a clear sky because on my way down here, the car temp said ten degrees, but as I I looked when I got out of the lights of the city, and into some dark onto the dark road, I looked to the sky and you could see the stars, you know. And if you haven't ever seen stars in the country, if you're trapped in the city. If you go out into the field or into the place that it's it's dark and you look up and you just concentrate on that. Maybe you're on an ice-covered lake or you're out in the field early, early in the morning and you look skyward. It's amazing how many stars twinkle up in the sky. And if you look closely, you can see satellites shooting across the, star, across the sky. So it's pretty cool. We celebrated Christmas at my house last night because Eric and Chad are both getting older and they have significant others, and Eric, a fiancé, who they uh, they need to get to families also with expectations of the holidays, the Christmas holidays, and meals and presents and all that. And that was a time that I used to not like very much. When they were little, we were expected to race back and forth to different households, and maybe you can relate to that. I hope so. But if you can't, well, if you can, you'll know of what I speak, because it used to get to be a real drag. And I actually got so I didn't care for the holidays, because it was hard to please everybody, and the only people that were pleased were others, and my young children just uh they spent a lot of time in the car riding back and forth but uh it's so we we celebrated last night and it was it was awesome way too much food way too much food i i deep fried a turkey and there are hosts here on the sh- on the fan that were that were talking about deep frying a turkey in uh, on thanksgiving and they knew nothing zero of what they speak and i'm telling you i have deep fried a bunch of turkeys for one it doesn't take eight gallons of oil no it doesn't take eight gallons of oil and after you do one bird you don't throw the oil away you can use it over if you want dump it out of the pot use a funnel and put it back in the container where it came in 
and just leave the gunk that settles down on the bottom and clean that out and throw it away. Throw it the garbage, the gunk. Put your oil back in there. You heat the oil to 350 degrees. You you uh, uh, thaw the bird, and I always brine it, and then dry it off, inject it with whatever injection you like, and I like the Cajun Creole butter. Three and a half minutes a pound. Some say three, but I, I do three and a half, and Jerry Riggy taught me how to do it years ago of capper outdoors and three and a half minutes a pound for me and i go no bigger than 14 pounds 49 minutes my turkey was done and the thing is you drop it in the oil slowly and no don't fill it up beyond the line on the pot as far as oil goes drop it in slowly and let the moisture bubble out and settle it down in the pot and keep an eye on it and I go. I went in and out of the house, and and it was all good. Forty nine minutes, brought it in, let it settle down a little bit. Used the electric knife, carved it up. We had barbecue ribs, turkey, and all the trimmings, and it was all good. And there's a lot of leftovers, so people are around. That's breakfast. Hey, I want to make mention of one thing too. My wife works in special education. And she works with severely handicapped kids, so kids I couldn't I couldn't work with. And she has done it a long time, and she is a saint. Well, one for putting up with me, and another one for doing what she does, because she's very good at it. And last week, they took their kids on a, and they can't say anything about Christmas. So it was a pre-Christmas break. They took them to a restaurant. And the kids are, you know, the kids are, some are very fragile, some are, are, are really handicapped and some are in wheelchairs and so it's it's a it, it's a tough job took them to a restaurant in new hope and i mention it because they deserve some recognition for the patience they showed and for what they did for these kids making it a real special day they opened 15 minutes early to accommodate the kids before their customers came and then they uh, they it took their time with them when they ordered and because some of them have even trouble speaking and they uh, they just did such a really nice job deb came home and said uh, how special it was and how much fun the kids had so if you're in the new hope area and you go by frankie's chicago style bar and restaurant if you might want to stop in for a bite to eat or even you know even just go in and and say well done with these kids because Kent is the manager and the waitress that that took care of the kids her name was Amber and I have not been there but I will be and I'm told uh, Deb said the food is really really good so Frankie's Frankie's Chicago style bar and restaurant in New Hope Minnesota and you can order through an app also or on the website but anyway I just Merry Christmas to them for what they did for these kids it is uh, it's pretty special. So we're going to take our first pause because coming up next, we're going to go all the way up to Bermidji and talk with a man I have shared some fields with. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a he. You're as cuddly as a cactus, you're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a... 
Mr. Grinch, your heart's an empty hole. Your brain is full of spiders. You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole. You're a vile one, Mr. Grinch. 18 minutes after the hour of 6 o'clock. <laughs> Uh, a little miscommunication on my part. We are back, and uh, I'm not sure if the uh, bumper music means anything or not, but we're going to go all the way up to Bemidji and find out if, uh, you know, it's supposed to be the coldest, coldest Christmas in more than 20 years. And Bemidji, well, it, if it's not the icebox, it's near it. But we're going to check in with Matt Brewer, elite pro staff member of Clam Outdoors, and find out. Hey, Matt, was the will the cold? Does that bother people that live up in Bemidji? <laughs> I I don't think people ever get used to it. <laughs> I, I I think you uh, you led into this nicely with my theme song. <laughs> but so are you? Are you? Have you got a reputation of being the Grinch? Oh, my wife would tell you. I, oh, I of course she no. would. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're in we're in pretty good spirits up here in the North Country, and and uh, it it may be cold, but uh, we're making ice, so that's well, uh, that's good for business. And uh, and I and I, I I need as much ice as I can get here with rental season. So, Matt, this has been the year that more people have died than the last two years combined due to thin ice and poor decisions, I think, perhaps more than anything. Um, and I've been told, I've been told, it's a quote that comes around a lot, that there's never anything that's considered totally safe ice. But with making ice up there in your part of the world and down here in the Twin City area, too, because it's cold here, um, what what do you do to stay safe? I do a lot of things to stay to stay safe, and this is definitely one of those years where you know we just keep hearing tragedy after tragedy, and and we uh, we were bragging for so long and about how Bemidji was in this little vortex where we we had good ice and we had people traveling from all over to come fish Bemidji the Bemidji area early, early ice this year, because it seemed like we had the best ice in the state for the longest time. And then, yeah. And then a couple of weeks ago, we had this, this tragedy and that just happened to be in kind of a fluke area where there was some open water. And, uh, other, other than that, we've had good ice, but, but we're still using safety precautions. I've got a nebulous, uh, flotation device on my, on my ATV and I've got one on my sled. And it can easily be removed and thrown in the in the tub when I'm pulling it out on the ice. Well, I'm going it, by it, foot. Matt, explain to people what a nebulous is because, and I know I have one, but w- w- tell folks what it is. So the nebulous is it's a small red. You can't call it a box, but it's a small red. Almost looks like a like a throwable you'd have in your boat. 
maybe a, a hair bigger and it has a, a CO2 cartridge in, in it and, uh, and you pull a cord if you're in trouble and it inflates almost immediately into a life raft and not only a life raft, but, um, but something that can, that can hold a snowmobile or four wheeler. So if, if I were on my sled and I happen to hit a bad spot, um, I pull that cord, it inflates, and it's tethered to my sled and will suspend my sled about six feet below below the surface, and then I can climb up on on top of the life raft and and get out of that frigid cold water yeah. and and hopefully my phone is still <laughs> still there or someone <laughs> sees me and I can get the get to safety. But uh, but that that's probably the most important thing for me i mean that in itself gives me you know a sense of of safety and and uh i don't i don't stop there i mean early ice i i always have my ice picks um it's not a fashion show out on the ice so don't be afraid to wear a life jacket and of course of course with the the advent of of lift suits and uh and floating suits i this year I'm wearing my, my ice armor ascent and you know, that, uh, that, that's going to keep me floating too, if I happen to go through. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, that's all good stuff. And uh, when you mentioned the cold and I talked about the cold and you kind of echoed that too, but making ice, when we get temperatures like we've got right now, and I think that you're right in single digits up there right now, um, how how much ice does it how much ice does is made in say 24 hours well it varies so much by how much snow is on on a certain spot i mean even even on a lake you know we get heavy winds up here too so it blows the snow around and you might have one spot where there's only seven inches of snow and and that that spot is going to make ice a lot quicker and they've always said when you get below zero um you know especially when you get down into the 10 below um you can make up to an inch of ice in a night so it can go pretty quickly but if you get on a drifty spot where you know there's 14 15 16 inches of snow that's drifted up the the r factor of snow um it's it's a pretty pretty darn good natural insulator mm-hmm. and uh and ice ice might not grow very quickly under those spots so so it varies and that's that's why you see variations in ice a lot of times with the super bowl coming to minnesota this year and being in february have you as the owner of north country guides have you felt any of the pre-planning from people coming from warmer climates to Minnesota wanting to do some ice fishing, or is it a little early yet for that? I'm not seeing it for the Super Bowl, but I do know that my phone has been ringing off the hook this past week for people from warm, uh, cli- warmer climates wanting to experience ice fishing while they're here for Christmas. Okay. And, uh, and I... I've been airing on the side of caution and I'm actually not putting my rentals out until this afternoon. So, um, I don't, I've been telling everybody, I don't think I'm going to be able to get anybody in, but I do have a bunch of people next week that are going to be setting foot on the ice for the first time in their life. And, 
it's always it's always it's always entertaining to watch. Oh, I know it is, Matt. I had a principal of mine years ago. I wanted to take kids ice fishing, and I remember that the office, the district office, told us we couldn't. And Willie said, "Well, we'll see about that." And he said, "Let's go out and look at this." And he was from Texas, had never never seen ice before, and never driven on it. And Willie Johnson, with his long leather trench coat and his Jaguar, we drove down, and he said, well, should we park here? And I said, no, we'll drive out on the ice. And he was not real sure about that. And even we parked on the ice, Matt, and I'll never forget, he opened his door and just put his foot out and tapped it. So it was, if it was good, he didn't want to go down right outside, even though we were sitting on ice already. So yeah, it's pretty good humor. Yeah. I have a, I have a fun story about one of my favorite and longest lasting clients who actually will come in this weekend. Um, he originally is from uh, South Africa and he brought his brother and they booked a nice fishing trip and I took him out by four wheeler. It was pretty early ice and, and uh, with a thick South Africa accent, he he's like, "Stop!" So we are on the ice, <laughs> like there's water underneath us. <laughs> he he couldn't believe it, and that was that's one of my favorite uh, first time stories. It was it was a blast. I you know, and I think back on the uh, this is an old story too, but when. OnStar first came out, and and the guy was lost on Malax, and he called OnStar looking to find Walk-On, and <laughs> the woman from the South said, "Sir, you're in the middle of Malax Lake." And he said, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> and you know, it's quite a yeah, it's it's an interesting concept for people that have never experienced it. How yeah. is fi- how's fishing been? Fishing's been great. Um, this cold snap kind of scattered fish a little bit and and slowed things down. So I think uh, you know what what we consider early ice, uh, the early ice bonanza where fishing is so good out of the gate. Um, I think this long cold snap will will change that and kind of uh, ease us into the the midwinter bite. Um, because we've noticed it on guide trips over the past you know week or so where the fishing has it's still good um but it isn't it isn't you know a hundred panfish day anymore it's a 25 30 panfish day and and uh you're looking for for some of those bigger fish and you really got to move around to stay on top of them because they're roaming in basins right now and uh moving around when it's 25 below with wind chill isn't exactly easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> oh. but, uh, you, you, you can still get out and get after them if, uh, if you can figure out ways to stay warm. You know, bring your bring your one-man shelter and, and uh, your Mr. Heater and, and brave that, that 10 minutes that it takes to move from spot to spot and, and get settled back in, and you're going to do well. So uh, the... the... The the, uh, what, the golden hour is referred to, and Bob and I talk about that as uh, hunting at the last hour of daylight before the sun sets, and and I know that Gens has talked about that golden hour as the sun settles down into the horizon. 
is that still early ice or where we are right now, even into midwinter? Is that some of the prime times this time of year to fish also? Oh yeah, that's 365 days a year. Um, you're, you're always going to have that, I, I call it a flash bite. Um, you're always going to have that flash bite from like, you know, uh, 45 minutes before sun or sunrise until 45 minutes after. And then same thing at sunset again, the fish are going to go berserk and, and they're going to stop roaming so much and settle in and really start feeding. And, uh, and that, that that's year round. I mean, it happens in the summer, it happens in the spring. Uh, it, it's really evident in the winter, especially if you're walleye fishing, you might walleye fish all day long. And then at three thirty, uh, it's like a switch turns on and they trigger, and uh, and that's when you try to fill your limit. So it uh, it it doesn't stop at at summertime or or and it's it's not exclusive to wintertime. It, it lasts year round. Matt, if somebody is going to plan a trip and they want to come up and get together with you or any of your guides uh, at North Country Guides, how can they get in touch with you? They can simply go to northcountryguides.com. And you can link them to all of our social media there, and uh, and our email and phone numbers are listed right there on the on the website. Excellent, Matt. I uh, I wish we had more time, and I we need to get. I'll, I'll I'll make it a point. We'll get together and have a longer conversation um, on, on one more of these shows very soon, if that's okay with you. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm I'm looking at a dog with a cone on his head, so we uh, we definitely need to have a conversation soon. <laughs> what happened? Uh, he got in a fight with a dog and tore a hole in his ear. So he's for the third time in his short life, he's a cone head. So, uh, and that's a tough. T- and this is a tough time of year to have a dog with a cone on. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. I know. It's like a snowplow. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Hey, man, I thank you for your time, buddy, and stay warm, okay? Thanks, Billy. You bet. That's Matt Brewer up in the Bemidji area, and he is is really quite an outdoorsman. I always enjoy talking to him. We will take a pause and be back with Stan Tequila of NatureSmart.com. Picture just came into the... Bradshaw and Brian inbox from Jeff Johnson and his dog uh, in the dark jumped over a fence and he uh, recalls a conversation we had with Dr. Dennis Gallenberg of Barrington Oaks Veterinary Hospital and his GSP, his German short hair pointer opened up her stomach on that post and it required emergency attention bad deal bad deal. He just got a Silmar vest and uh, he had uh, other vests he said we tried to shaft his chapped his dog and this one works much better. Silmar. If you're looking for a quick after Christmas gift for your dog, it's a worthy investment. We'll be right back. Stan Tequila next on Fan Outdoors. From now Listening to the fan. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. 
Yuletide carols being sung by choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe help to make the season bright. We are back. Tiny tots with their eyes all on this. The holiday season. They know that Just got a. And every mother's child is gonna spy to see if reindeer. Really know how to fly. Well, it's it's all good, I think. I I don't know. <laughs> I I'm hearing a delay about ten seconds from when it comes out of my mouth, and it's a little more difficult to uh, to keep up with things. But that's okay. Just gotta. Uh, I know that Chip Lear on a tweet is up in the Leech Lake area and listening and said it's above zero up there and it's not that cold yet. And Chip is a great guy too. And if you get a chance to uh, to sit down and talk with him, you'll absolutely love it. And he works for Northland Tackle too. And that's a, a boy in ice fishing. They they as far as tackle goes, they do an awesome job, and he does too. Let's get to our next guest because he comes to us from, well, you can find him and a lot of his work at naturesmart.com. And we didn't run his opening this morning because, well, I was confused. I don't know how come, but I was so confused. But let's welcome into the conversation the man who jumps on stage when he when he is introduced and he is suspended. He jumps down into the audience and flies around the room with a big uh s on his cape you have a heck of an imagination <laughs> <laughs> that would be mr stan tequila stan how are you buddy good morning bill how you doing i'm not bad i'm well i'm catching up with things now it's a little confusing at times but to me it's just kind of my world uh hey i i read something yesterday that there's an uh snowy owl eruption out around the great lakes have you heard yeah. anything about that? So the snowy owl eruption is happening uh, now. It's uh, occurring through um, parts of North Dakota, all across Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, all the way to the East Coast. Um, the way these eruptions uh, occur is that um, unlike uh, a migration, a migration is a predictable, um, uh, you know, regular annual basis, these eruptions occur every, uh, you know, so often. And in this case, the last time we had one was four years ago, and uh, this year we have uh, another one. Typically, these are young, uh, uh, so juvenile snowy owls that have uh, moved down from the Arctic and have moved into the area uh, to spend the winter time. Now, in the past, uh, these eruptions were always thought to have been triggered by um, a lack of food. 
So a starving situation in which the birds really needed to go else place to find food. Uh, the current theory is that in years where we have a lot of, uh, uh, where there's a lot of rodents, the adult snowy owls, unlike other owls, um, when they're having an abundant food year, are able to reproduce and uh, have survived more young. And so they can get upwards of uh, five, six, seven, and sometimes eight babies that they can get to survive through that. And then what we see is this um, kind of a, a population boom. And those are now what we uh, think are the um, <clears throat> the kind of the trigger of why these owls come down because there's so many of them. And by the way, the studies are showing on this that they just don't head south. You know, we typically think of them going north-south in this, this type of migratory movement. But, in fact, uh, uh, what we're seeing is that they'll go in all different directions, including north, uh, out of uh, in the Arctic, even up onto the uh, uh, polar ice caps. And so uh, we see this, this kind of unusual behavior uh, moving out every so often. So there are hundreds of snowy owls that have kind of moved into the area. I am the uh, official... Uh, Christmas bird count uh, person for the MSP airport in eastern Richfield. And uh, last Saturday, a week ago today, I did my uh, Christmas bird count. Uh, Bill, are you familiar with the Christmas bird count, what that concept is? No. <laughs> so uh, not to, not to kind of go off the rails too far, but uh, back in Victorian times, late 1800s, um, it was holiday tradition to go out with your family and a shotgun and shoot tiny little birds. You know, I don't know about you, but I can't think of a more festive way to celebrate the holidays than this. <laughs> go out and murder a bunch of little tiny birds. But so, uh, in, in, in the year 1900, Audubon Society, uh, with just a handful of people, started getting, you know, started and said, look, instead of going out and shooting the birds, let's go out and count the birds. And so since 1900, every uh, uh, right around Christmas time, every year, right around Christmas time, people go out and count these birds. Now it's a global thing. It's been going on for a hundred and, you know, <laughs> you know, over a hundred years now. And the, uh, uh, you know, we've got quite a big uh, database of all this stuff. Well, in order to do that, you need volunteers to go out and, uh, there are sections, there's quadrants, there's, uh, you know, areas in which need to be covered and, and need to be counted. And they do it all in one day uh, for that area. So uh, mine was last Saturday. And uh, as I said, I do the uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport and the Eastern Richfield area. And uh, so which includes going into the uh, uh, Minneapolis Airport uh, grounds. I'm taken in by uh, security and they drive me around and I I count all the birds inside the airport. And as of last Saturday, there was uh, four uh, snowy owls uh, inside there. there. There's been more. Um, uh, obviously, this represents a threat to the uh, airlines because you know, a large bird like a snowy owl getting sucked into an engine is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, periodically they do remove some of the birds. But um, So we're seeing quite a few of them around. And by the way, <laughs> I love this. Uh, they always say that, um, that uh, the, you know, because all across uh, the northern states, from Maine to, you know, Minnesota, we see snowy owls showing up at airports. Now, and everybody says, well, because it looks like the tundra, you know, flat and open. And, 
Yeah. I just I just couldn't disagree more. I mean, <laughs> it's like, you know, go there, stand there, you know, and look around. You tell me. It looks like a tundra. I've been to the tundra. It doesn't look anything at all like the tundra. There's buildings everywhere. You know, there's flashing lights all over the place. There's, you know, uh, gigantic airplanes coming and going. There's cars driving all over the place. You know, to me, it doesn't look anything at all like the tundra. There's, you know, large buildings uh, everywhere. Uh, by the way, the, the FedEx building at um, at the airport is probably where most of the, a lot of the snowy owls seem to hang out, which is kind of ironic. And, uh, <laughs> but at any rate, uh, and, you know, I mean, if you go outside the metro area, if you go out, you know, just anywhere outside, you know, the ring of the metro area and uh, into the agricultural areas, now that looks like tundra to me. It's flat, it's open, there's no buildings, no airplanes, no cars, no nothing, you know. Uh, that looks more, much more like it to me than, than the airports do. So this whole why they show up at the airports is still unknown uh, and, and really an interesting question. Huh. Um, we've got a couple of calls or a couple of emails that came in to the Bradshaw and Brian inbox stand, and both of them have to do with porcupines. Oh, cool. And uh, Bobby asks if, he said this past November at his cabin, he heard a porcupine in a tree, and he thinks it's probably a pine tree, and it was making a call that sounds like a crying animal. Yep. And one day in the morning, going back out in the afternoon, didn't hear it and didn't hear it the next weekend. He, uh, But he didn't ever see it, and he couldn't see it moving around and couldn't tell that there wasn't any trees, and it, I think they they kind of eat the bark, if I'm not mistaken. But um, he, he was wondering, was it just passing through? Do they ever get nomadic, or what do porcupines? Um, what what do they do? So they're very they're very nomadic. They move around a lot, and um, so the chances of them being there, you know, the next day even are pretty slim. And uh, they, if, if people don't know, porcupines make a, a, a crying noise like a baby, a little whiny, little whiny crying noise. It's, uh, it's actually quite quite cute. And they uh, they 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 are an interesting animal in that they do eat bark. Um, so a lot of people think that they just eat wood. They don't. They're eating the uh, live parts of the tree. So when you've got a a tree, and you've got the the wood inside, the wood inside is essentially dead. It's, uh, it, it's uh, you know, um, cells that are no longer uh, alive and functioning. It's just that outer edge underneath the hard bark that's alive. And so that's what the porcupines are eating. They're eating the bark itself, and uh, much like a beaver, by the way. Hmm. And uh, th- this is where they get their nutrition and everything. And they, they sit for hours and uh, just nibble on these uh, on these trees and, and eat the uh, the bark. They're oftentimes attracted to things with high mineral content. So uh, you always see this where um, you know axe handles or you know things that are touched um, by people or or uh, you know some kind of uh, salt has been put there. They're always attracted to those types of things, and you see them. Um, the funniest thing, though, is I oftentimes will see porcupines out in uh, north and South Dakota uh, walking along on the tundra. And, you know, I'm a prairie, I mean, and it's like, holy mackerel, you know, it's just, they're, you know, three miles from the closest tree, and there's a porcupine. And uh, moving from one 
uh, small grove of trees to the next small grove of trees. And that always cracks me up to see these guys going along. Of course, they're perfectly, you know, protected with uh, 30,000 or more, you know, quills on their body that uh, are, um, you know, the, by the way, they can't, they cannot shoot their quills out. A lot of people think that they have the ability to, like, flick their tail and throw their, their, uh, uh, you know, quills at you, or they're able to somehow or another with some mechanism be able to uh, do it. And I have a friend of mine who always says, you know, the, the way to prove that is just, you know, try doing it yourself. Um, just hold your breath and just try to, you know, push all your hair out of your head. And, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like the same exact thing. It just doesn't work. You know? a, so, a curious dog and porcupines are not a good mix, though. Oh, my gosh, no, yeah. So what happens, of course, there is that they, they uh, you know, the, the dogs go to investigate the porcupine. Porcupine quickly turns, slashes its tail out, which the vast majority of its quills that have are stiff and have, uh, you know, that come off are located on its tail and it's on its rump. And uh, and so once those things get into the skin, that's it. They, they come right out of the porcupine, and that's, they can be a real issue. Yes. Hey, we have to take a pause, Stan. Are you okay, Holden? Let's do it. And uh, Greg says that there's quite a few snowy owls near his home in Saxon Harbor off Lake Michigan, but his Christmas bird count is today up in that part of the world, so that's pretty cool. That's great. We'll take a pause, be back with more Stan Tequila. We'll talk about his trip where, I don't know, He's. we'll find out if he's, if he's filming horns or antlers out west. I'm not sure. What do you think? Enjoy the music. We'll be right back. More Fan Outdoors next. Somebody waits for you. Kiss once more. You're listening to the fan. Work. Now, baby doll, sweet pie, sugar, plum, honey, but angel face, you know you better be good. Act like true fine love should Be careful what you say and do Cause Santa Claus is watching you He's everywhere, he's everywhere You better kiss me and hold me tight And give me good love in every Seven o'clock, straight up He's everywhere, he's everywhere <laughs> I love it Hey, Paul sent me a tweet and and uh, to uh, my Twitter account, which is at Captain KFAN. But uh, his sky is pretty special. It's a picture of the night sky and the Milky Way, and it's absolutely stunning. And, Paul, thank you very much. It's awesome. That's pretty cool. Hey, our guest, Stan Tequila, and find him in a lot of his work at naturesmart.com. Stan, I know your recent trip out west, uh, you were filming some uh, some sheep out there. Horns or antlers? <laughs> well, actually, on the, on the, uh, you're right, Bill. I was just recently out uh, west and um, uh, photographing both horns and antlers. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so the, the the main thrust of the trip was for uh, bighorn sheep. Uh, bighorns are, you know, one of a couple of sheep species that. Uh, well, we got I think it's uh, three sheep species in the uh, United States. Uh, the most common, of course, being the uh, uh, the bighorn. We have the doll sheep and the stone sheep, 
uh, are our other ones. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of people will say, well, what about the desert, you know, bighorn? And that's just a subspecies of the uh, of the of the Rocky Mountain bighorn. But at any rate, um, so the the bighorns are, are quite an amazing um, animal. They really are. And I'm always, you know, I'm always. I, that's the one thing that I just really absolutely love about about wildlife is every contact I have with it is makes me appreciate them more and more and more. Mm-hmm. These, these animals are, uh, you might think of them as, you know, quite large, but really they're, they're fairly small. Um, they only stand about three feet tall at the shoulder. So, you know, overall they're not that big of an animal, but they, the males, the big rams can run 300, 400 pounds. So, you know, that's a pretty decent size, you know, uh, uh, body. And then at that point, you know, think about a white-tailed deer. You know, a lot of our white-tails are, we're lucky if they're 150 pounds. That'd be a big, right. big buck, you know. And these guys are much shorter, but uh, uh, almost double the weight or more than double the weight. And it is pretty impressive uh, to see. And then to watch them scampering around on these, uh, you know, mountain faces, cliff faces, you know, with no, and they don't even blink. I mean, they don't even think twice about it. They just stand there or run or walk on these edges, and you just, I'd be terrified, you know. Ah. <laughs> it is truly amazing. By the way, you can go to, um, I don't know if you got your computer up there, Bill, but you can go to naturesmart.com, and then uh, go to the, uh, in the top right corner, there's a Facebook um, uh, icon there, and you can click on that Facebook icon, and you can see about five or six of the pictures that I've been able to post so far from from that trip. So um, the, at this time of year, the uh, the rams are are uh, you know in uh, breeding condition, so uh, the rut is on, and uh, so they're uh, kind of keeping. Uh, they're not really in charge of these of these harems of of, of uh, ewes. But they're uh, attending them. They kind of seem to want to do what they want to do, and, and the males kind of come and go and are looking for it. And then there's always one or two males who kind of staked out a uh, a group of ewes, and they're gonna uh, you know stay with them through the whole breeding season. What when, cracks me up? Go ahead, Bill. When when two rams, and I, I just see a video of it, Stan. I'm sure you've seen it in real life, but would they kind of back up and then they. It's they're up on their hind feet and they give a big push and they hit each other's head on. Yep. Is that in competition for the use? Yeah. So that's and that's what I'm there for. That's that's what you're. That's the moment in time in which you're trying to capture. And uh, this only happens between uh, equally uh, sized rams and uh, of rams who don't know each other. A challenger. Uh, who comes into a uh, a group and he's the same size, uh, same physical condition as uh, the kind of resident male, you'll get those types of challenges. Otherwise, it's pretty much peace and harmony the whole time. Hmm. And so, uh, but what cracks me up about the whole thing is the way, the way they challenge each other. Uh, they'll, they'll, you know, this new male will kind of approach the group and he'll go up to the uh, the resident male and um, oftentimes bump up against them, push up against them, rest his head on the back of the other one. Of course, he's just, he's just eating. You know, he's got his head down. He's munching on dried grasses. And, uh, and if that doesn't elicit anything, what the challenger will do is he'll take his front leg 
and he'll lift it up and, and literally kick him in the butt or kick him in the in the belly. And more times than not, I, I see him, you know, kicking him in the nuts. And it's just absolutely hysterical because <laughs> he's like, hey, you know, come on, let's do this thing, you know. And oftentimes it takes multiple times for the uh, uh, challenger, you know, to keep kicking him, keep kicking him before he finally, all right, and they kind of turn and they'll kind of push on each other a little bit. And then at some point, you can always tell uh, the eyes get buggy and they'll take about two steps back and they will. They'll get up on their hind legs and they'll, uh, one turns their head one direction, the other turns their head the other direction. How they, you know, figure out who's going to turn which way, I don't know. And then they just, it's a short run of maybe, you know, couple of yards and bam they hit heads together and when they hit it <laughs> sounds like a gunshot yeah and it echoes off the canyon walls and it's just like amazing it really truly is huh. oftentimes after they hit like that it knocks them off their feet and it knocks them off their back feet and then they'll uh many times will then just um uh, uh shake it off it's like oh man they're you know, it's like, whoa, they shake and they kind of stand there stunned for a second. And then uh, they kind of go back to eating. Uh, rarely does it happen over and over again. Rarely does it happen. I, uh, back to a previous conversation we had, Stan, Todd sends me a tweet. And he's got pictures from the Duluth airport. He must work with them. And so far he said they've caught 11 snowy owls so far and relocated them to the Grand Rapids area, and uh, he's got, he's holding one, and there's another in a cage and another standing out on, on the airport. But right. he, they're beautiful bird, too. Yeah. The MSP has removed 12 so far, um, and, um, you know, there's at least five more. So the, there's, uh, there, you know, there's quite a bit of, quite a few of these birds around this, uh, this wintertime. Hmm. So, yeah, I... They, they have to because they have to move these birds because of the, you know, the threat to being uh, uh, contact with the. We've had one uh, this year, uh, this winter. We've had one contact with an airplane and a uh, snowy owl, and it was an uh, outgoing jet, and uh, it uh, hit the landing or the, you know the, the landing gear on it, and uh, as it was taking off, broke a hydraulic line. The bird, of course, was killed, and uh, the plane had to turn around, come back, and land, and then they had to tow the um, the jet over and uh, had to deplane and change planes and everything, uh, and because uh, that plane was out of commission at that point. So yeah, you got to you know you got to be really careful. And a lot of people get a little upset about this moving the birds and things, but they're clearly not. They don't have their head in the right place when they you know when you this has to be done because of the safety of uh, of people and. You know, if there was a way in which, I mean, a lot of airports use dogs to chase these, and they use um, uh, sound cannons, so these are cannons that go off and making a loud noise. They use all sorts of different um, deterrents, and yet the birds are still there, too. And sometimes it's lethal as far as the methods they use, too. Uh, yeah, and usually not. Usually what they're doing is they're they're, they're capturing them, and then, uh, you know, as they're saying, they... they are moved to different locations and then uh, released again. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I was reading a thing the other day, and they were saying, well, well, they should move them at least 50 miles to make sure that they don't come back. <laughs> I'm thinking, they, they flew probably 1,000 <laughs> miles to get here. 50 miles is nothing. You know? Yeah, it's <laughs> just a skip and a jump, boy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's nothing. You know? yeah. I mean, they could probably do that in an hour. Totally agree. Hey, last night I stepped outside. Actually, I was deep frying a turkey, and I stepped outside, and I could hear a... An owl, hoot, 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 that kind of a thing. Are the great horned owls, Are they must be just about ready to, to mate, aren't they? Yeah, you got it. We're moving into the mating season for great horned owls here. Uh, January and February is our is the time, so they're going to start defending territories. I'm hearing them call every single night. They're very, uh, very active at this time of year. Um, I'm just finishing up writing a new book on owls, and um, really owls is the... Uh, uh, Kind of the winter is the time of plenty for owls. It's a good time for them, as opposed to a lot of birds which that seem to struggle. You know, the owls really do well in the winter time. So I'm jumping around conversation-wise all over the plate because I, if I go back to the snowy owls, the article that I had read referred to lemmings and yeah. as a preferred food, and the fact mm-hmm. that they thought there were three hundred thousand snowy owls. Now they've dropped a number to more like 30,000 in existence. Is that something you'd concur with? Yes, uh, I completely agree with that. The deal with these snowies is that they live in areas in which uh, we don't have a lot of access to. And so, therefore, they they, they really um, uh, a good census of how many, a good count of how many has never been available to us. And so it's always been a uh, wild guess. And uh, the latest estimates are there's only about 30,000 of these uh, birds as opposed to what they used to think of 300,000. And um, so that's a, that's a classic, you know, uh, goof um, that we see happening a lot. Um, uh, we, we think we know one thing and, and it turns out we're absolutely, you know, incorrect about it. And, you know, unfortunately, we've seen that over and over again. And it, it also went on to, to speak to the fact that some of the captured owls are being fitted with transmitters so that they can people can, uh, naturalists and, and scientists can learn more about these birds and what their habits are and where they might go and how far they do travel in that. And that's got to be a fascinating study in itself. Yeah, you can find this on Project Snowstorm on um, uh, online, and the uh, uh, they've got some new tracking devices this year that are actually solar powered, because in the past they would put uh, they put them on and the batteries only last about a year or so, mm-hmm. and then now you strap this um, you know device to a bird that's only going to work for a year or, or you know possibly two at the very very most. And then, of course, the bird's burdened with it for the rest of its life, you know. Yeah. And uh, and the data's not that. So the solar-powered ones uh, are hopefully going to work longer and be able to uh, provide better information over a longer period of time. And this is where we're seeing the data coming out for which directions in which they leave and that uh, many of them uh, fly uh, very long distances and, um, uh, you know, kind of, double back and change around and there's it's it's not like again when we i think when we think about migration we think about this really orderly you know a to b to c uh, direction in fact they're not they just kind of wander and they kind of go here they kind of go there sometimes they'll go east sometimes they'll go west and they'll turn around go back south and then they go back up north and then, you know it's like 
these birds are moving around. It's, it's, it's truly amazing. I was just looking at the same similar data for the whooping cranes who uh, migrated out of uh, uh, Wisconsin and headed down to um, Louisiana and northern Florida. And uh, it's truly amazing how these birds are able to, um, uh, you know, find where they're going and, and, and more importantly, find each other when they get there, too, which is truly amazing stuff. When you're talking about the the, the, the transmitters and that, uh, I, I was just having a conversation with my son yesterday with the, the moose study that's oh, yeah. just winding up now, and they have uh, close to 30 that are still on the air, but... I think last week it was planned, but they're looking for better weather. They actually blow the collars off remotely. Yeah. They have a little charge in them that that releases the collar, and they drop off, and then they go re, re uh, go pick up the collars based on their GPS transponder, and yeah. they get all this information from it, and and uh, they just went on one that that died and the information that they're be able to glean from this is absolutely incredible and it, it, as it comes out and it becomes public knowledge i think people will be quite fascinated and also the fact that the uh, the wolf is not the bad guy <laughs> and yeah. that's that's what's yeah. coming out and now there's some proof to that too well, and, and thankfully for that, first of all, those, those collars are amazing that um, that they can do that with uh, charges. We're talking about a large animal who can handle that kind of weight. A snowy owl can never handle that kind of weight. Right. You know, those types of things. And getting back to uh, what you're saying there, you know, um, with, with just a little basic common sense and forethought, um, or maybe hindsight, uh, to simply blame the wolves um, shows that you're not thinking beyond your own little world. because. No. We got to remind people that wolves, deer, moose, uh, elk have lived side by side for thousands of years before we came along, and they didn't. The wolves didn't kill everything out. No. Um, you know, it's just that uh, nature seeks a balance. You can't. It can't work that way. Uh, if it worked that way, you know, it wouldn't. It, it wouldn't happen. It, it just wouldn't be a, a possibility. Um, you can also look at that. Um, you know, Isle Royal example here. I mean, here's tons of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of moose and, uh, and, uh, a couple dozen wolves and guess who won? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the, it wasn't the wolves. It is a very difficult life for wolves. It is not easy. They, these animals only live three to five years in the wild because of the rigors involved with it. You know, um, uh, you get five years on a, on a wolf and they're pretty old. And um, they they just don't it's it's just not an easy uh, life for them uh, when you have to for a living go out and kill things that are much bigger than you are and you have to do it with your teeth. Stan, you know? Mother Nature is in terms of our definition of cruel or humane. Mother Nature is about the least humane yes. of all. Yeah, it, it, it's not about being cruel or, or no. humane. At all, it's about survival. It's about trying to survive. I always like to jokingly kind of say all the times I said for these wolves, you know, uh, it, it's it's really the salad bar is not an option for them. No, you know what I mean. It is a uh, it is this is what they eat and this is how they do it and there's no choice. They have to be able to go out and um, it's really a life and death situation and it's really their life. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's that's in jeopardy because if they don't kill to eat they they die on that thought stan i'm going to have to say goodbye for for the time being and and thank you wonderful holiday talk we had by the way (laughs) yeah it kind of it goes all over the place doesn't it (laughs) hey bill if i could quickly mention uh if anybody's in the twin cities uh metro area and happen to be maybe giving one of my books for uh, a Christmas uh, gift. Yeah. I'm going to be at my nature center today from 10 to noon. Uh, it's a free open to the public uh, type of thing. It's in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. People can stop by. I'd be happy to autograph anybody's books if they're giving anything out for gifts. All right. Uh, will there be any books offered for sale, Stan? Uh, there might be. <laughs> <laughs> and where is your nature center, my friend? Well, it's in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. It's a Starring Lake Outdoor Center in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. I'll be there from 10 to noon, just me hanging out, I'll have the doors open, and uh, it's our annual, uh, every Saturday we have an open house, and um, I'll be the one there today, so I just thought I'd pass it along. Are you going to have any of the kids' books, maybe? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's what I would recommend, too, along with all the other ones, everybody. Stop and get it, and ask Stan to sign it, and It will make a wonderful, wonderful gift. Starring Lake Nature Center. Stan, thanks, buddy. All right, Merry Christmas to you, Bill, you and your family. Uh, And the same back at you, my friend. Wonderful, wonderful evening and holiday. We'll take a pause. Starring Lake Nature Center. Head on down, 10 to noon. See Stan, okay? Tackles next on Fan Outdoors. This is Fan Outdoors. He's, well, I don't think he's naughty. We're going to ask him. I think he's probably pretty nice. And the rumor is that he's been busily cutting a giant hole in the ice to get his boat in. And let's find out if that is indeed the case. That would be from Tackle Terry Tuma. Tackle, are you cutting a hole in the ice to get your boat in? Good morning, you. Hey, good morning to you, Vin. Good morning, guy. No, I'm not, but I am sitting on the ice fishing. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's better. That's better. Yes, it is. Yes, how, it is. How, how much ice do you have? That's about uh, six to seven inches. Oh, okay. Well, and I checked in, uh, in a, lot, a lot of the lakes in the Faribault area, which was sort of a late ice up, uh, talked to one of the bait shops there, and they said it's running about five to seven inches on most of the lakes today. Well, with a warm spell or the cold spell in the foreseeable future, we got to be building ice. Oh, no question about it. I talked to, uh, in fact, Eddie Lieback, Lieback's ice fishing, and he said when you have sub, uh, sub-zero weather, you make about one inch a night. Okay. That's, yeah, that's, that's uh, we need that, too. Yeah, we really do, Bill. Uh, it's, it's, you know, and very minimal snow, 
uh, in our area anyway. A little snow wouldn't hurt, though, but uh, it uh, we're going to be full-time ice fishing here, I bet you, in another week. Well, and we just talked with Matt Brewer up in Bemidji earlier in the program, and he was saying that now with this cold spell, the early ice, he thinks, up there is pretty much done. The fish are going to disperse into their more midwinter locations. Uh, have you begun to see that? No. No. In fact, I was out yesterday, Bill. We were, were fishing in seven feet of water. Oh, okay. Uh, and no, not, uh, not, and I think it varies a little bit on, on specific bodies of water and so forth. But uh, yesterday, just to give you an idea, these bluegills were biting so light, Bill, that I, the spring bobber never moved. Really? Uh, yeah. So I had to take and put my finger, run the line between my thumb and forefinger to feel that fish. Huh. Interesting. Well, yeah. when, when you're watching the fish come up and you're watching it on electronics, as all people do that, well, that's the most fun for me anyway. But when you're watching them come in and you're jigging, I know that Dave Gens talks about continuing to jig all the way until you get the bite. But for me, it's just, I, I had trouble doing that. I mean, I'm, I find myself getting so mesmerized, I stopped jigging. Yeah, well, I think, um, Bill, what really, I think it's, uh, it depends on the fish. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and on the mood of the fish. Uh, I really believe that uh, there's, uh, and I know there's times when you jig too much, you spook the fish. Uh-huh. And many times now, yesterday was just holding it steady. And if, uh, you know, you can jig to draw them in, but once the fish comes in, depends on how aggressive they are. Many, many times, you know, if they're fairly aggressive, sure, they're going to hit it. But if not, then you better hold because here again, they don't want to chase it, Bill. They're, you know, uh, the weather really affects that. And then also, you know, fishing pressure. And we have to also understand, too, their metabolism will way down, so they're not going to be uh, requiring as much food, and they're going to be moving as much either. Well, you know, the other thing, though, Terry, if people sight fish for panfish, it's really fun to do, as you know. And But the one thing I've noticed that it doesn't take anything for you to get a twist in your line. Even when the jig drops, it spins. And if you stop jigging, that bait spins. At least mine does. Yes. Well, I, I think uh, what happens is, too, and I, uh, yesterday and I resorted to, uh, uh, because of the um, bite, resorted to uh, sight fishing, though. Mm-hmm. After, you know, we got, you know, the sun came up and then it got fairly bright, so I was able to sight fish. But I was watching my jig, Bill. And, uh, you know, I think so often we think it's, you know, it's always hanging straight down with the wax worm or a silver wiggle or whatever it is. And if you're jigging a lot, a lot of times it's going sideways, Bill. And that is not a, to me, that's not a good presentation. And so many times just holding it steady and then just twitching it a little bit, if you will, or shaking the rod tip or uh, just um, tapping the spring bobber, really, it's amazing how much that moves that lure. Whoa. And uh, I think it's something that we have this tendency too much to do many, many times for walleyes included. We sometimes we jig too much, yeah. And and then I think it uh, it, it it spooks the fish and intimidates the fish. And yes, you need to do it if you want an attractor. If you got a tough bite, you got to draw these fish into a hole. But I, I think many times, you know what? Uh, many times we overjig. Uh, same thing in open water, we overjig, and many, many times a holding can be extremely productive. Well, Terry, you know, the, but 
I think what you're talking about with jigging, if you're if you're sight fishing, it's such a learning experience because sometimes when you jig and you think it's just a little bitty thing, it's quite violent underneath the water, and you just touch the rod, and it's you just barely touch the rod, and that little jig dances all over. Yeah, you're exactly. Yeah, just amazing. You know, if we can do that kind of sight fishing, you, you are right. It's amazing what we can learn by doing that, Bill. Uh, and two is just, uh, you know, watching, you know, these fish come in and inhale. Uh, and only most of the time when I was able to sight fish, I was using waxworms. And when I seen that white little waxworm disappear, I set the hook. And uh, and that's that was my uh, which is my strike indicator I guess you go on bite indicator if you want to call it that, but it's just amazing. The other thing too is that um, I was using and I am currently using now I'm using a braid fireline bill. Okay. And and just I'm just you know, I like to experiment, but I also noticed with the fireline that uh, a couple of things. One, it it it's a little bit of more of a coil to it, so there's no resistance there. And then number two, I did not notice my jig spin as much. Huh. Interesting. But yeah, interesting. you know, here again, is that a fact? I can't say that for sure. But it was just learning again, learning something sight fishing. Yeah, and I, I totally agree, Terry. And the inline reels, some of them are now so free spooling that they'll drop straight down. And I think that oftentimes people don't realize that with an open face spinning reel, the more traditional spinning reel, is you use the drag. You're putting a twist in the line each time that drag goes around. It makes a makes a a, a turn. Oh, exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, the best thing for any angler, no matter what species you're fishing for in the wintertime, well, even in open water, if you're getting walleye, but it's just to bring that lure out of the hole and just let it unspin, if you will, or go back to normal, and, and then that'll offset that. But what you can do, too, is, you know, is instead of doing a lot of jigging, you just take that line and just sort of twist it between your thumb and forefinger a little bit. And you, as you mentioned, you get an awful lot of moments just yeah. avoiding a lot of that jig spin. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Terry. It's it's such a, a, a steep learning curve where you can actually watch your bait go down and see it move and you do impair the movement on it. But to watch the fish come is the other half of that equation, too. You can see sometimes they pass it by, sometimes they'll go in and they'll pick it up and blow it out faster and you can set the hook. I mean, and sometimes they'll come up and just nibble at it. And it's it's amazing, and it's, well, it's so much fun. Well, yeah, it really is, you know. But it, it is, you know, and, you know, it just, it, it's amazing how these fish bite, you know. I, you know, we talked in the past about, the retention of baits and lures, the time frame that these fish, uh, you know, have, well, if it tastes good, you know, if it doesn't taste good, how they can blow it out so quickly. And most us can mentally and physically react to that kind of a bite. And that's where learning and watching, you know, watching fish in the winter times is really a plus factor. Well, they come in and they kind of, sunfish especially, will nibble at the, the waxworm or whatever's on there, but they shake it violently just in an instant. And it's amazing to me how they can pick parts of it off, and all of a sudden, you know, oftentimes if you're not doing that, you reel your bait up, and you find it's empty, and you really didn't ever see anything or notice anything. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, and a lot of times, too, they can come, they just sort of bump it. Yeah. You know, they don't even uh, open up their mouth to inhale it. They just sort of bump it. Just like, you know, like they're saying, get that out of my way. You know, yep. and, you know it just, uh, it just, 
You know, same thing with, I had a question asked about uh, using Stingerhooks for wallets at a, a recent seminar. And that is something, too, that we should try to avoid, even if they're like, biting light or, or just sort of chewing on a little bit, just try to avoid the stinger hooks. Hey, Terry, before we let you go, uh, there's still a day before all tomorrow is Christmas Eve, but if people are still looking for maybe a fishing gift, what would you recommend? Maybe maybe a child wants to buy something for their dad or their uncle or their their aunt for fishing, even a bait. What would you recommend? Well, I think, you know, one thing, depending, you know, finding out, first of all, what, you know, the parent fishes for, the father fishes for, and then, you know, getting some uh, some baits and some lures for that individual. Uh, I think that's number one. Uh, there's so many different varieties out there. I strongly recommend some of the, uh, you know, if it's walleye fishing, uh, going with some of the more aggressive type of lures, you know, like a Jamie Shad wrap. Leech Flutter Spoon is another great one. Uh, just jigs. And then, too, you know, it's just, Sort of checking it. What else did he, you know, you know, another thing too is winter socks, Bill. Yeah. You know, uh, that so many people just forget about. You can also get a pair of uh, sort of nylon socks that go on first and then wool sock on second. Uh, those are some great, um, great gift ideas. And then, of course, you know, anything that, you know, like uh, even like a rod and a reel if that's needed. Uh, there are so many different. Item just walk into a retail store and you'd be wow, what should I get them, right? Yeah, and you know, you can pick out to you can never have the, the right color, and even if they've got something of a particular bait or whatever, two isn't a bad thing. No, no, it's a good thing, really. You know, yeah, and I think you know, so often we try to limit ourselves a little bit with you know, baits and lures that's not all necessary. Well, I can assure you that. Uh, there's going to be many times, most of the time, one bait doesn't work every day, all day long. Terry, I thank you for your time again, buddy, and uh, wish you nothing but a Merry Christmas. Well, thank you to you too, Bill, and to all our listeners. Really enjoy and have a very Merry Christmas, and take some time to go ice fishing. There you go. Tackle Terry joins us every week. We will take a pause and be back and see if maybe we can dial up Bob St. Pierre. I don't know. He might be stuck in a snowbank or in the woods or someplace far away. Hmm. I don't know. And we've got, uh, we'll mention some special people, too, before we finish up this morning. We'll be right back with one more segment. And by the way, we're back this Thursday evening, too, for uh, a very... I don't know. It's almost unusual Thursday fan outdoors, but this week we get both Thursday, this coming week, Thursday and Saturday of next week. So we'll be right back with, hopefully, we can find Bob next. You're listening to The Fan. Shut the door You crossed the sea To fight a war You didn't know Just what would happen to you Stepped in the dirt Boots on the ground And gunfire Was the only sound And to yourself You whispered hallelujah Hallelujah I would be remiss on this, the holiday season, the Christmas season, if 
we didn't take a moment to mention those who serve far away from home, maybe others who have spent holidays far away from home, and uh, you're doing a heck of a job, and thank you for what you do. It's important. It's crucial. Um, and we'll just we'll kind of let this roll underneath a conversation we are going to have with our next guest. But before I bring him into the conversation, Dave sends an email to us from Farmington, and he's stuck in a bed for a number of weeks now. But Dave, thank you for the kind words. Um, glad we can bring a little sunshine early in this day to you and we'll keep doing that too and you get better real soon let's jump all the way out to the upper peninsula of michigan where our usual co-host is spending time with his family well also probably stuck in a snowbank i've seen him there too (laughs) (laughs) and that would be bob st pierre of pheasants forever hey man how are you I'm doing good. <laughs> See, and, and you know what else December 23rd is? I give up. Your birthday. It's Festivus. Huh? It's Festivus. Festivus, yes it is. <laughs> but it's your it's your birthday for, yesterday. For this, it was my birthday yesterday, so I uh I escaped work a day early and spent the uh, Friday, my birthday in the grouse woods with my girls, my wife Meredith and my two pups. Ah, beautiful out. Yeah, it, it, very nice, very nice. And speaking of pups, how is that Georgie girl doing? <laughs> she takes after her dad. She's very, very big personality, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, well, I got, I got one too. <laughs> Fact, there are two of them no, in my house doing, right now. Doing, doing as excellent. She uh, she loves playing with Esky. Trammel's not so sure about the play, but uh, Esky likes playing with her. Cool, cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they've got lots of the and the the Georgie girl is a Brittany pup from a litter that I had, and uh, they're they're all they're all pretty special critters, and everyone yeah, is. It's amazing how much she's like. Uh, a lot, a lot of similarities to Snap. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've got some snow out there too, huh? Yeah. It's well, the UP. You know, um, seventy miles separates the distance between Lake Michigan and and Lake Superior. Um, my folks live on the Lake Michigan, uh, just a few miles off of Lake Michigan, and there's um, oh, I don't know, maybe four to six inches of snow, maybe a little less, even three inches of snow here. Um, but as we had north, we're going to do today, we're going up to Marquette, which is on the Lake Superior shoreline. And we're going to spend some time cross-country skiing tomorrow up there. They've got two feet of snow. Oh. So it's a, it's an amazing difference um, in, in what the lakes, the different lakes produce from a snow perspective. Um um, I'm going to grouse hunt um, tomorrow after skiing and about midway through um, between Michigan and Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. I expect it's going to be a little bit of tough walking, but it'll be fun. I've got a 
real special Christmas Eve spot that I always hunt up there. So do you strap your shotgun on your back? <laughs> there will be snowshoes involved, which if, you, uh, if you've ever tried to shoot a shotgun on snowshoes, you can imagine how difficult that is. You just got to hope that that bird uh, gets up pretty much straight away because if it starts banking to the left or to the right, I may get a shot off, but I'm also going to end up in that snowdrift you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and if grouse hunting wasn't tough enough, you know, you get one grouse and you feel pretty proud. If you get a grouse in the winter on snowshoes, uh, it's, it's epic. You know, you've, you've really accomplished something. It, it, I'm successful maybe one out of three years. So we'll see. It, it's always fun. Well, I, uh, Greg sends me an email to the Bradshaw and Bryant inbox, Bob, and I am to ask you, where do youpers keep their hats? <laughs> uh, where do youpers keep their hats? On their toques. Uh, uh, I don't know what's the what's the answer. I, I don't know if I can pronounce that, but it's uh, Antonagon. Antonagon. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, Antonagon. Uh, Antonagon oh. <laughs> is a town in the UP, so that makes sense. That's and, and it's important that you pronounce it right. Antonagon is all one syllable. Let's see. I I've, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's very close to um uh you're familiar with Stormy Cromer uh hats. Uh Aunt Noggin is not too terribly far from Stormy Cromer's headquarters. They're they're based in Ironwood. So that's on the uh uh western UP, um real close to the Wisconsin border up by Lake Superior. I uh, I was just talking to somebody a couple of days ago and they said they were from Michigan and I said, "Well, um, are you a youper? Yeah. And he said, I said, are, are you above the bridge or below the bridge? And yeah. <laughs> I said, are you a troll? <laughs> yeah. Says, if you live below the bridge, you're a troll and that's not something you want to be. I know. He says, how do you know that? <laughs> oh, but it's, uh, it's all fun too. It's all good. Um, yeah. so are you celebrating Christmas with your mom and dad then? Yeah, yeah. Um, my folks, and in, in, it's a family and a bird dog Christmas this year. Um, and, um, my brother's family is actually, his his wife's from Minnesota as well, so um, we do the flip-flop. They're in um, um, Minnesota this year, so we we were in uh, Minnesota for Thanksgiving Christmas this year, and we'll reverse the next year. We'll be here Thanksgiving next year, and uh, Christmas in minnesota so next year we'll have the entire family together with my brothers but um that's what happens when you live a couple states away you move things around yeah you got to do that you got to do that any uh but it's all good we we saw them last um on the way through um on the way through home uh, on the way through to the up on thursday my brother lives in rhineland wisconsin so okay uh, we're able to drop some Christmas presents. Excellent. Good for you. Good for you. Well, um, I will, uh, I'll let you get back to celebrating Christmas and look forward to your return back in Minnesota uh, next Saturday morning, or are you out again? <laughs> I'll, I'll be back. I'll be back, Captain. Merry Christmas to you and Deb and the entire Hildebrand family as well. 
I, I do appreciate it and back at you, my friend. And be sure you travel safe. Have fun. Don't get stuck in a snowbank, though, okay? <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Merry uh, Christmas. You bet. Merry Christmas, Bob. And I did uh, I did see Bob in a snowbank one time, and he had just stepped off. It was much deeper than two feet, but it was up almost to his shoulders into his chest. And, and uh, he, he was pretty much stuck. We uh, and we were walking. It was a late winter pheasant hunt. Diseased. Uh, yeah, it was. It was fun though. But he had trouble getting out. And so, anyway, we did hunt pheasants, and there's about a week of pheasant season left on this uh, Minnesota pheasant season. And I know my youngest son and both my sons actually are planning to get out and do a little pheasant pheasant hunting. Yeah, we hunted last weekend down as i think i had said last weekend on the air about a mile less than a mile in fact across the 